Downtown Productions in cooperation with Zone Radio presents Downtown, the podcast. From the historic Zone Radio studios, here's your host, Rich Kimball. Hi, hi. Welcome in. Tis Downtown, the podcast, episode number 245. Rich Kimball here with Carrie Haskell from the Zone Radio studios, Bangor, Maine. And we're brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. Well, well, welcome to the podcast. This week, we have a comedy legend and a pet psychic intuitive cowgirl shaman, Terry J, coming up a little bit later on. If you haven't seen the new Peacock series, Paul T. Goldman, man, it's a hoot. She's in it. She plays herself. And then at times, actress Dee Wallace plays her as well. Well, we'll talk about all of that with Terry in the second half of the podcast. Comedy legend, well, there's no question about it. Uh, He came up through the Second City Toronto ranks, uh, appeared in a production of Godspell that was an all-star team of Canadian comedy talent back in the late 1970s. And then was one of the founding members of SCTV, became its head writer and was uh, responsible for some brilliant characterizations. His impressions of Bob Hope, best I've seen anybody do, but loved his work as uh, one half of the McKenzie brothers with Rick Moranis. That led to even more success with an album, a hit single with Getty Lee. Fun story about that coming up. And of course, the movie Strange Brew. He's gone on to a success in the TV series Grace Under Fire, And in recent years, has been doing a lot of writing for dramatic series like Bones and The Blacklist. We had a wonderful time talking with the brilliant Dave Thomas here on Downtown. Dave, thanks for joining us this afternoon. How are you? I'm doing great. How are you? Good, thanks. Well, it's good to have you along this afternoon. I want to talk about a lot of things, but let's go back to the beginning. Not the universe, but your your beginning. You, uh, You lived in a lot of places as a young man, North Carolina, Scotland, Wales, England. Did that did that impact your sense of humor? Did you use that to help yourself fit in in new surroundings? Well, it gave me an ability to do dialects and uh, such, you know, because moving around uh, as a kid, you're kind of uh, impressionable. And you're in Scotland, you hear the Scottish dialect and how it rolls and how it works and... When you're in Wales, you hear, well, then, boy, Bach, how are you? And beautiful to see you here by the... It's... Uh, and then down south, you know, we had our own kind of rhythms in Durham, North Carolina. And uh, <laughs> so, yeah, it affected me. I mean, um, I was always um, affected by speech and uh, any character stuff that I ever did. I usually started with a voice, and that comes from my childhood, I think, of moving around. I, I saw in an interview once, and I'm paraphrasing a little bit, but you said something along the lines that normal people can't always be that funny. I think what I said was that being funny isn't a talent. It's a condition. It's a disorder. <laughs> right. <laughs> and, and people who are funny are usually screwed up in some way from childhood, usually in adolescence, you know, and um, 
most of the people I know who I thought were really funny had problems in their teens. And I too had problems in my teens. So yeah, I guess, you know, it's, it's being funny is a defensive mechanism. If you can make people laugh, you got a little bit of control of the room for a minute and gives you a chance to kind of uh, cover up, cover things. I know uh, all funny people have a lot of influences too. I know I know Mad Magazine was a big influence for you. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, those I I got to know some of those writers when I came out to California. Um and they were they were my idols as a kid. I I used to read their parodies of um television shows and things like that and um and then I was tremendously honored when they did a parody of Grace Under Fire. <laughs> so they Mad Magazine parodied me, and I got drawn by their great artists, and it was pretty wonderful. But yeah, I, I'm I was definitely influenced by Monty Python, by Mad Magazine, by the National Lampoon, by um, uh, Peter Sellers, and. Jonathan Winters and Andy Griffith, uh, just so many different comedians that played a part in my sort of um, comedy development, I guess you might say. I don't know. I, I read uh, something where you said you didn't do plays when you were in high school, but you knew even then that you, you wanted to be on television. Yeah, I didn't want to be in a play of Life with Father where I'm wearing a white wig and pretending to be a 60-year-old guy. <laughs> When I was like 15, I wanted to be on real television and I knew I had to wait, you know, so uh, I didn't even try out for plays when I was in high school. I didn't, I didn't want to be in plays. When I got to university, when I got to McMaster, <clears throat> that was different because I met Marty Short and Eugene Levy and we were able to do plays that were kind of in our own bailiwick, you know, and we had a lot of fun. And was it there, was it in college that you made the uh, underappreciated masterpiece, The Columbus of Sex? No, I didn't do that. You didn't that do was Ivan Reit that? was Ivan Reitman. Oh, but were you in it, though? <clears throat> nope. Oh, okay. I, I thought you were. Okay. <laughs> no, Ivan did that, and then he got, I don't think he was arrested, but the film was confiscated by the Mounties. <laughs> <laughs> so, you know, yeah. But there was no film school or no no theater school or no television school at McMaster. All of that that I did with these guys, Marty Short, Eugene Levy, Ivan Reitman, then it was all extracurricular. It was all funded by the student union, and and it was on a shoestring, you know. How did you get involved in the touring company of Godspell, which was an, an all-star team of of talented performers. It wasn't a touring company. It was a resident company in Toronto. And uh, it opened first in New York. And then the producers decided to open a, a company in Toronto. And they put a cast together. And um, I wasn't in the first cast they put together, which was Victor Garber, Gilda Radner, Martin Short, Eugene Levy, Jane Eastwood, Andrea Martin, Jerry Salzberg. I was in that cast with Eugene and um, and Andrea and halfway through the run, 
when they had a couple of cast replacements. And uh, so, yeah, that was my first real professional gig in showbiz, you know. But you decided to, uh, after school, to pursue work in the advertising world. And uh, uh, you got on board with McCann Erickson, ended up getting a Coca-Cola <clears throat> account in Canada. And, and that went so well, if I remember the story right, that you ended up going to New York and working with uh, the legendary Bill Backer, who a lot of people think might have been uh, the role model for Don Draper on Mad Men. Yeah, that's true. He was. He was the guy who created that I'd like to teach the world to sing um, mountaintop commercial for Coca-Cola. He was a very unusual little guy and um, wore a little gray suit and a little bow tie. And um, and I, I, he called me down to New York because he liked a couple of the spots that I did uh, for Coca-Cola uh, for Canada, for Coca-Cola Canada. But he saw them and he said, yeah, I want to meet that guy. So I, they flew me down to New York. I walked into his office on Lexington. It wasn't on Madison Avenue. It was on Lex. And it was a beautiful corner office with a grand piano and a, and a Persian rug and everything. And he was sitting on a sofa just kind of by himself. And I sat down and he started talking. And he started quoting Shakespeare. <laughs> and I was really just two years out of college where I had taken Shakespeare as a major. And I didn't understand why, why he was quoting Shakespeare, but I thought, all right, well, if that's the game, I'll quote it back to you. So I started quoting Shakespeare back to him. <laughs> well, I, I became the golden boy just because I could do that. That was so <laughs> strange to win somebody's favor over just by your ability to rhyme off stanzas <laughs> in iambic pentameter, you know. It was pretty, pretty unusual. And you were doing well in the advertising world, but you you walked away from a pretty good income to make, uh, what, $145 a week in Second City? Yeah, you've done your research. That's exactly <laughs> what they offered me. <laughs> and it was a real step down. And I remember the uh, pre this president of Interpublic, which owned McCann, a guy by the name of Jim Reeves, called me into his office when I said I was leaving and going to do Second City. He said, how much are you being paid for that? And I told him, and he was like, God. He said, why are you doing this? I said, because I really want to do it. He said, okay, I'll tell you what. We'll hold your job for you for a year. And get go get this out of your system. And um, when you come back, we'll start you at this salary. And, um, and you can go back to New York and work with Bill. I think Bill Backer had called him. And so I had a safety net for my first year. <laughs> In Second City, <laughs> even though I was making 145 a week, I knew I could go back to a bigger salary if it didn't work out. Well, it, it certainly worked out. And then uh, around that same time, Lorne Michaels began raiding the Chicago Second City group and pulling in those people to do what became Saturday Night Live. Was SCTV a response to that in some way? Yeah. I mean... The owners of Second City, Bernie Sullins and Andrew Alexander, saw their cast being pirated by Lorne for this new uh, sketch comedy show. So they decided to do their own sketch comedy show, which wasn't a great idea because there already was one on now. And so then you go to the networks and say, how would you like a, another sketch comedy show? So it made it a bit of a hard sell. But um, 
but they did it. And it was originally on global television in Canada, a real shoestring budget and 48 syndicated markets with um, um, Filmways where it was the syndicator in the U.S. who also syndicated the Beverly Hillbillies. You remember <laughs> Ellie Mae saying, this has been a Filmways presentation at the end of the, <laughs> at the, end of the show. So, uh, but then uh, Brandon Tartikoff, who was at NBC, after some of the cast, Chevy Chase left and there were changes going on in SNL, he was watching SCTV and he put us into all the NBC O&Os, the owned and operated mm -hmm. affiliates. And uh, so we went from 48 markets on Filmways to like 300 markets and uh, following Saturday Night Live. And then the next year he offered us a 90 minute show on Fridays on NBC. Mm -hmm. So of course we took that. And, and then it was just a kind of a rocket ride, you know, with <laughs> winning Emmys and going to the, getting a Grammy nomination for the uh, McKenzie Brothers album that Rick and I did and, and making a movie for MGM. It was just, I, it just seemed like, I was talking to Rick the other day and we were just reminiscing. Actually, it was yesterday. <laughs> the other day, yesterday. Um, we were reminiscing about all the limo rides and some of the stuff, that funny stuff that happened on behind the scenes. It was I had a lot of fun. I had a, a lot of fun. We're talking with Dave Thomas on downtown. Well, I was such a fan of SCTV, and and maybe because it was Canadian and because it was on so late at night that th those of us who loved it here as as young guys felt like we were in this special club. And uh, and some of the characters that you created and, and impersonated were were so fantastic. I'd never seen anybody do Bob Hope before. Now, was that something you had done on stage at SCTV before the, the before the uh, television show? No, um, I had done it kind of joking. I used to have, I I could, one of the guys writing for our show was Bill Murray's brother, Brian Doyle Murray. Right. And I used to make Brian laugh because I would just do Bob Hope talking about, hey, I'm in Vietnam and I'm higher than the DMZ on some of this crazy weed they got. And so he thought that was funny. He said, you got to do Bob Hope. And I said, I don't think I could really do him. And he said, you could, you could. So he encouraged me. And the two of us wrote this sketch together for SCTV called the Bob Hope Desert Classic. And it put together um, two things that we thought were, were very important to Bob, which was golf and war. <laughs> so we had Bob doing a golf um a golf uh, tournament in the Middle East with, you know, Yasser Arafat and Menachem Begin, people like that, golfing and competing with each other and Bob doing his monologue on, you know, the ninth hole in uh, in uh, the Middle East. So anyway, it, it's that started it. That started me doing the impersonation, and I thank Brian for encouraging me. Well, and... Play it again, Bob, you and Rick Moranis. I mean, that's just one of the most brilliant pieces of sketch comedy that I can I can think of. That was so well done. The weird thing about that particular sketch was that Rick could channel Woody. And by the time he joined the cast, I had done Bob Hope a few times, and I could kind of get into the headspace of Bob Hope and kind of do him in improvising 
So Rick and I improvised that play it again, Bob, into a little micro cassette recorder in the writing room. And um, we were just making the writers laugh, but it, we just kept going. And then we realized, oh, we got a piece here. We got a sketch for the show. And so we just took that uh, tape recorder and edited it down to the sketch, but it was basically all there in the tape recorder. <laughs> now, you ended up working with Bob a number of times. Uh, you hosted, I think it was his 90th birthday special, among other things. I, I love the story, and you've, you've told it on other shows, but if you could if you could share the story of when Bob's publicist told you that you needed to go to his house and visit with him, and, <laughs> and Bob wasn't sure why you were there. <clears throat> okay, just to correct you, I didn't host his 90th. Johnny Carson hosted that. But I was a guest on his 90th birthday okay. playing Chester Hope, That's his right. nephew, That's made right. up as Bob and impersonating Bob. Anyway, um, I got I was working on Grace Under Fire, which was shot at CBS Radford in the San Fernando Valley, very close to Toluca Lake where Bob lived. And I got a call on the set from Ward Grant, who was Bob's publicist. He said, hey, Bob wants you to come over to the house. And I was like, hey, Bob Hope wants me to come over to the house. I'm, I'm on my way. And uh, so I drove over there, and uh, Ward met me downstairs. He said he's upstairs outside his bedroom in a little makeup area that he had there. So I walked up the stairs, and Bob turns and looks at me, and he goes, because I'd seen him before and been at his house, and I knew him. And he looks at me, and he goes, oh, hi, Dave, what are you doing here? And I said, well, Ward said you wanted me to come over. And Bob looks at me, and he goes, yeah, well, what do you want? And... <laughs> Well, you don't get into it with a 90-year-old man and say, well, you know, Ward said, you want me to come over, and now you're saying, what do you want? I just said to him, I want to see that picture you got of Pat and pissing in the rhyme. Because I'd heard that Bob, in his travels with the, with the, for the troops, had uh, been in Europe, and he had got a hold of this picture of General Patton pissing in the rhyme. But when I said that to Hope, he just lit up like a Christmas tree, and he said, he said, I got that. Here, let me show you. He said, you know, there were three of these photos. He said, the family one, the Patton family one on the back, and they got the other two, but I'd never give them this one. And then there was like, <laughs> right on Bob's wall outside his bedroom, there's this picture of Patton with his thing up, pissing in the rain. You know, and I was like, holy moly. And you know? and next to a picture of Neil Armstrong? Oh, yeah, he says, <laughs> he says, this is Neil Armstrong. He did my special right after he got back from the moon. And I don't know how many people could say something like that. Uh, one of <laughs> he my, was a pretty unique, he was a unique guy. One of my favorite characters of yours was uh, your Scottish veterinarian. Was that, uh, was that influenced by uh, your mother at all? Yeah, she was Scottish. And, um, and I went to Scotland, you know, and I was fascinated with the dialect. And one of the things I've heard people try to coach people do the Scottish dialect. And the thing they often miss is that it's a song. It's a language that comes from song, Gaelic. And so they'll say, are you not, are you, aren't, aren't you going to come over today? It'll be, are you not going to come over today? It's a wee song, you know, and <clears throat> you can do the dialect pretty well if you've got a musical ear and can pick up the song because then it's just a the intonation on a few words that need to be tweaked 
But if you understand the song, and if you can go up and down, you can get the dialect really easily, you know. <laughs> so anyway. All right, the McKenzie brothers, met people may not know this, began because you had to fill some time. Was it the a Canadian content clause that meant you needed to do two extra minutes uh, for the no, Canadian version? It was because the American version had more commercials for the in the half hour. The Canadian version was two minutes longer. Okay. So that means we needed two minutes of more content for the Canadian version. <laughs> and CBC, who are the broadcasters for the Canadian version, said they wanted that two minutes to be exclusively Canadian. So sarcastically, Rick and I said, well, you want us to do, put up a map of Canada where Tooks and Parkas <laughs> drink beer? And they said, yeah, that'd be fine. If you could put a Mountie in it, that'd be even better. <laughs> so that's what we did. <laughs> and, and then we had no idea that in trying to do a a kind of a joke back at the CBC to put them in their place for their stupid suggestion that it would be such a break, breakout hit. You know, I mean, we had no idea. And with those breakout characters on any kind of a show like that, it, it's it's almost like the momentum creates a life of their own, and it just continues to build. Well, that was certainly true of Bob and Doug, who pushed out to a new, a different audience than um, SCTV. And part of it was that when we did the album, we had uh, our song, we had Getty Lee sing on our song. <laughs> so then we were hitting his fans and the heavy metal crowd, and it was it, it completely changed the viewership to SCTV, and it and it was a it, we were hitting a new audience. Our sister station WKIT, that the the uh, that uh, Getty Lee song is still a requested song all the time. Oh, really? Yeah, yeah. It's it's, it's the highest charting song of Getty's career. <laughs> you know, I forgot that there was somebody there. And you turned, and I heard this other voice, and I thought, he is one hell of a ventriloquist. <laughs> yeah, he's, yeah. I, he's uh, just fantastic. Thank you. I, uh, you never never even see my hand move. That's the no. crazy part. <laughs> it was your idea to do the album, right? Uh, my brother's a Canadian musician, and he right. had a deal with this album company called Anthem. And I said to Rick, we could do an album. We could probably sell it because we're on TV. I mean, we'll be able to promote the album and that's going to be valuable to the, but anyway, Rick was a DJ and he understood records better than me. And he said, okay. So when we got the album deal, Rick said, we have to put a song on it. And I said, why? He said, to get airplay. We won't get airplay with a spoken word comedy <laughs> album. And he was right. And he said, in fact, we need two songs because we need a. Got to have a B side, song. right? <laughs> And a B-side, yeah. So um, so we did the song, and Rick knew Getty Lee from school. And so he just asked Getty if he would sing on the song. And we literally paid him a case, a 24-bottle uh, case of beer. That was his, that was his. And when the, when the record went gold and platinum, Chevy King, or um, um, Getty came back and said, uh, I'd, I'd like to renegotiate. <laughs> <laughs> now, you guys, you and Rick were not allowed to write the movie Strange Brew because of your contractual arrangement with SCTV? That's right. 
So we took some of our record royalties and hired a writer. But that didn't work out because these were improvised characters. All of the two-minute sketches for Bob and Doug were improvised. So to hand over the franchise to a screenwriter who didn't really know us and have our ear, um, the first draft didn't really... It wasn't a movie that we wanted to make. But our agents at Creative Artists Agency in L.A., uh, got the script on a Friday from the writer and they sent it out immediately because they knew you know, there's a TV state. There's a no brainer for a low budget movie for a studio. And they had a deal by Wednesday. Then we had a deal to make a movie that we didn't want to make. <laughs> and um, Rick was going to pass. And I said, well, let's rewrite it. And he said, well, they bought that other script. I said, they didn't even read the other script. <laughs> <laughs> this is a deal. They're shooting the deal. We can rewrite this and they won't even know. And he said, I don't know. So I started rewriting it on my own. I don't know. I got to page 20 or 30 or something. And Rick came over and he said, let me see what you got. And I showed it to him. He said, okay. Okay. I'm in. We'll do this. <laughs> We're talking with Dave Thomas on downtown. You mentioned grace under fire, big hit series for several years was uh was Brett Butler a challenge to work with? <laughs> well, I think you know the answer to that, don't you? <laughs> yeah, she was. It, it, it's very strange, you know, how... <clears throat> whatever was wrong with her, whatever problems she had, were aggravated by success. You know, people often say, do people become jerks when they become successful? The reality is they don't have a personality transformation. They don't really change. They just become more of what they were. Mm. So, you know, it was kind of like that. And and that show shot up to number one in the summer. It wasn't, it wasn't beating home improvement during the regular year. But during summer reruns where, where people had already seen um, home improvement, which was in the number one spot, Grace Under Fire hit number one a few times. And um, when you have a show that's in the top 10 consistently like that, the, it has an engine and a momentum of its own that'll go for five years mm -hmm. without yeah, having any ratings at all, you know? It, you just get off to a good start like that. And that, that's the engine that carries you for a while. Now, were you responsible for getting Tom Poston on the show? Absolutely. They hired a guy to play my dad, and it was the only time I ever had, had a tantrum on the show. He wasn't a good actor, and um, I said, I, I said, I'm not, I'm not coming in. I'm not shooting with this guy. And they said, Well, who do you want? And I said, Well, and I meant this as an example. I said, Well, why don't you get somebody like Tom Poston? And I went in the next day, and Tom's there. <laughs> and he looks at me. He says. I understand you're the guy that I'm supposed to thank for getting this job. Well, thank you. You know, <laughs> the two of us became great friends. I loved him. And, um, and we had a lot of fun together. I just did use, I used to ad lib and do things in front of the live audience just to make him laugh. And I understand the, uh, the wedding reception uh, for Tom and Suzanne Plachette was a high point in your life, a moment to remember. It was wonderful. 
it was at the Beverly Hilton Hotel, and Merv Griffin owned that hotel, and he was friends with Suzanne and, and Tom, and he donated the ballroom at the Beverly Hilton for the wedding reception. And he also put a band on stage with Jack Sheldon, the famous trumpet mm. player, as the leader. And so anybody who wanted to sing, and there were, this was show business. <laughs> I was at a table with uh, Don Rickles, um, Tim Conway, um, Richard Crenna, uh, Merv Griffin. It was just like... 70s heaven. I, I had such a good time that night. It was what a fantastic evening. I have to ask you about a, a TV movie you did for Fox with a, a wonderful friend of our show. She was just on a week or so ago, uh, Mr. Foster's Field Trip with Julia Duffy. Oh, yeah. Julia was on your show? Yeah, she comes on a lot. Oh, great. Oh, yeah. She was my love interest in the show. We had to kiss. <laughs> and, you know, Comedians don't usually play love interests at all. That, that doesn't even <laughs> really happen. But this was sort of a softer. But anyway, so there was a the day of the kiss. I knew there was a little bit of awkwardness between us, you know. And I, I, I went up to her and I said, "I know why you're worried about this because you're worried that once you kiss me, you're going to fall in love with me and leave your husband, <laughs> and it's just going to destroy your life." And and. It, and I just have to tell you, you got to fight that. We're <laughs> actors. You got to pretend that it doesn't have an effect on you. And that that eased the tension, and she just laughed, and we handled it very well. You started your own animation studio, uh, Animax. D did you enjoy doing animation? Ultimately, no. But I'd done every other kind of TV, and I was curious about everything and when Dan Graney who was one of the writers on the Simpsons called me and said he and a partner wanted to form an animation studio and did I want to go in in on it with him I said sure why not and then after about two months Dan and the other partner got into an argument and Dan quit so now it was just me and this guy I didn't know <laughs> and a bunch <laughs> of animators going, well, what do we do now? So I had to go out and try to find, like try to sell animation shows. I didn't know any of the executives in in the animation world, you know, and I had to figure out who they are and figure out how to do that. And my and the other partner wanted to do cor uh, corporate stuff. He had, he wanted the animation studio to be more of an ad agency. So that's always a difficult thing when the two partners of a company have different visions for the company. It usually means it's not going to go anywhere. And, but it took 10 years for Animax to kind of implode in on itself. <laughs> How did you go, Dave, from uh, from being in a guest starring role on Bones to writing for the show and then writing for The Blacklist? The writing was first. Oh, it was? Yeah. Uh, Hart Hansen's a friend of mine. I met him at uh, a little league baseball game where our kids were playing and um, we became friends and had coffee and we were just talking one day and he said, you know, you have good ideas on dramatic stuff. You should write a Bones episode. And I said, sure, I'd love to do that. He said, just send me 10 
unique ways to kill somebody. And if I like one of them, we'll 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 do a screen. So I sent him um a list by email of unique ways to kill somebody. And one of them he really liked. And um so um I wrote a script and they liked it. And then they said, Would you like to work on the show as a consulting producer? And I'd never done that. I'd never worked on somebody else's show before. Mm. And I thought, well, I love this guy. Hart's a great guy. And so I thought, well, this is, this could be fun. So so I did it. And I had a great time. I had a wonderful time on that show. That was a great show to work on. And you wrote a book a couple of years back with Max Allen Collins, The Many Lives of Jimmy Layton. There it is right there. Look at that. See, folks, I'm a shameless promoter. <laughs> It's available on Amazon for the shockingly low price of eight ninety nine, <laughs> and um, yeah, it's a quantum mystery. And uh, Max and I got introduced by SpongeBob, Tom Kenny, <laughs> and uh, a mutual friend. And he, you know, he, we were talking on the phone, and Max said, "What are you doing?" And I said, "Well, you know, I pitch TV shows and write scripts and things like that. Occasionally act, but mostly write." And he said. Uh, you ever written any prose? And I said, well, I have, coincidentally. I have an idea that I was thinking of a, pitching as a TV show, but I thought it was too weird. So I just started writing it as a novel, and then I gave up because I got busy doing other stuff. He said, how much you got? And I said, I think I got three chapters. So I sent them to Max, and Max read them, and he said, I really like this. He said, I'll help you get a book agent or a publishing deal, but what I'd really rather do is write it with you. And while since he'd written over 100 novels and I'd written none, I thought, <laughs> well, this is a no-brainer. This is a win-win for me to write with a with a, a serious novelist. So we started writing it, and we wrote it during COVID, and um, pretty much all on Zoom and <laughs> Google Meet, you know. So, um, yeah, it was uh, it was fun. I really enjoyed that. I want to talk briefly about your son, too, uh, Harrison, on my favorite TV show that uh, the last few years, he worked for Gus Fring at Los Poyos Hermanos on the wonderful Better Call Saul. Yes, he did. And got real popular. And I put his picture up on Twitter. I got a very small, I think I got like 14,000 followers or something. A very small Twitter account. And I put Harry's photo with Gus up on there, and I got, like, more hits than ever before. It was <laughs> over a million impressions, and, you know, and it was just like, holy moly, this show's really popular. So uh, Harry's uh, Harry's done a lot of TV as, a, as an actor, but he's also right. The two of us uh, sold a script idea to BBC and CBC, which we're currently writing, and... Um, and I think he's going to write. I think he's going to be a writer as well as a performer. Well, that's wonderful. Well, Dave, I have been a fan of your work for, well, longer than I care to remember here. It's such a treat for us to get to talk with you here this afternoon. Really appreciate you making some time for us, and uh, we wish you much success with all your future projects. Well, thank you. It was a pleasure to be here. Dave Thomas, Kerry, we add him to the list of uh, comedy heroes that we've had here on the show been lucky enough to to talk to some of our favorites through the years whether it's uh, the
the SNL people, Kids in the Hall folks. Um, Firesign the Theater. Firesign Theater, yeah. And, the, of course, the great stand-ups as well. But, but I put Dave Thomas uh, right up there on that Mount Rushmore of, of comedy greats that we've had a chance to talk with. Yeah, and, you know, in our discussions about it, it's the, the underground appeal of SCTV. Yeah. It, it felt like something that a lot of people didn't know about when it was on, mm. and that just made it all the more special. Oh, yeah, yeah. Like you were, like I told Dave, like you were in a secret club, you know. Yeah. Um, yeah, it was great. And, uh, boy, you go back and had a chance to rewatch some of those episodes and, and sketches in preparation for talking with Dave. And they haven't lost a thing. They're still so good. Because they weren't, they weren't timely. They weren't, uh, they weren't topical mm. for the most part. They were just character-driven and, and remain brilliant today. And hopefully we can get him back on. He was a lot of fun. Dave Thomas here on Downtown. We'll take a break for a word from Cross Insurance. And when we come back, well, she already knows it's going to happen because she's a psychic. Terry J. will join us right after this on Downtown. Since its founding in 1954, Cross Insurance has grown from a small family-owned agency that started in Bangor, Maine, into one of the largest super regional insurance agencies in New England. With the network of offices throughout New England, Cross Insurance works with top carriers to provide maximum value to you, your family, and your business. We are proud to be the official insurance broker of the New England Patriots and would welcome the chance to provide security for your team. For more information, visit CrossInsurance.com. Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. If you could read my mind, love, what a tale my thoughts could tell. Our next guest on Downtown is an intuitive, a psychic, a pet psychic, and refers to herself as Cowgirl Shaman. She's the author of a number of books and is featured in the uh, very interesting, I, I enjoyed it a lot, the new Peacock TV series, Paul T. Goldman. She plays herself when she's not being played by actress Dee Wallace. We had a very fun time talking with Terry J. here on Downtown. Well, I'm happy to be here. Thanks for having me. I want to talk first uh, off about uh, what you do and uh, and how it works, and you've explained that what you do is a pretty natural thing. You pick up on energy that other people miss. That's pretty much it. My practice is completely based in physics, energy, frequency, vibration. I really like to take the woo-woo out of it, you know. And, um, you know, I just found out I could do this um, back in 1990 when I heard a nonverbal child speak. And so how did you respond to that? Were you aware of what was happening at the time? Not at all. Not at all. The volunteer that was helping me had to point it out. And then I went into the classroom, and uh, they had put a pointer on his head, and he typed out on his computer, fourth lady can hear me. So then I had it confirmed. And then I stood there and talked with him and realized that I was hearing telepathic communication. And uh, you wrote in, in your book about uh, the work that you've done with people who are non-communicative. I, that has to be so rewarding to, to be able to give that gift to the families. Oh, goodness, yes. It's, you know, people don't realize this. We have 7 to 9 million people in the United States that cannot communicate. From coma, persistent vegetative state, from severe Alzheimer's, uh, nonverbal autism, there's so many people that can benefit from learning intuitive communication. 
So uh, let me ask you this, in terms of, of what you get for a message, and, and I've spoken uh, with mediums before, and, and uh, it's been explained to me that, that sometimes, that it's not a literal thing, that sometimes it's more uh, symbols. Uh, how would you describe what you receive for communication? You know, it really depends on what you're communicating with or who you're communicating with. With animals, you get visual images, taste, smell, sounds, feelings. Feelings can either be emotions or they can be physical pain. And so you have to tune in in a different way and then sort of put it all together. Um, if I communicate with somebody in a coma, I'm gonna, it's going to be just like talking with you. It's going to be the same thing. And if I'm communicating with somebody on the other side, again, it's the same thing. It's just like having a conversation with a person that's um, in physical form. And how did you uh, determine that you had the ability to be an animal communicator? Well, after I had that one incident back in 1990, the gal was helping me said, well, you ought to learn to communicate with the horses because it's the same thing. All animals are telepathic. And then I was just so naive and there were like no books at the time. Now it's a cottage industry. But I just thought, okay, that's what I want to do. And so I did. Well, it's fascinating, the work that you do, and, and equally fascinating. Uh, I was absolutely mesmerized by this new series on Peacock, Paul T. Goldman. It's uh, fascinating what uh, Jason Walliner has done with this series because the lines between reality and fiction, much as they were in, in, in Paul's life, seem to be a little bit blurred. Uh, how much did you know about the project when you got involved in it? I just knew what I was going off of Paul's book, you know, and that he had recorded the readings that I did for him. And way back in, I think, 2005 is when I did that reading for him and told him that his wife felt like a hooker. And she, instead of the money on the dresser, she wanted his stuff. And so that sort of, you know, stopped his desire to try to make it work and got him on the trail of kind of becoming his own detective to figure out who she was and what she was doing and all of that. And and so what were you able to ascertain about uh, the woman that, that is known as Audrey in the series? How were you able to figure out that she was involved in some certainly nefarious activities? Well, it's just, that was just based on feeling that, you know, here she was acting like this warm and caring and loving person, and she was not. It was all an act. You know, she should have gotten an Emmy for acting in his life. She was good. And, of course, you know, Paul, he's so sweet, you know, and he's kind of naive. I don't know so much anymore, but, you know, he's just a really nice, sweet man. And so he takes people at face value. Well, and as you told him uh, early on, at least in the series, you said to him, I'm your butt kicker. Yes. I'm, I'm always, I do that for my clients. I'm their gentle, loving butt kicker. And I like to do that. <laughs> well, you play yourself in several episodes of the series. And then a friend of our show, the wonderful Dee Wallace, plays you as well. What was that experience like of, of getting to see someone else uh, with an incredible uh, record of accomplishments? She's got, I think, more IMDb credits than any other actress out there. What was it like having her play you? And, and you were often right there watching the scenes. That was so cool. They flew me down there to watch her play me and get my impression of it. And I don't think they could have gotten anybody better. 
you know, just people don't realize this about her, but she does energy healing and you know, right. the same stuff that I do. You know, we have different practices, but it's still in the same, you know, the same genre, so to speak. And I was so honored to find out that it was her and they get to meet her. And she's so down to earth and wonderful. They couldn't have, they couldn't have picked anybody better. I mean, I think she's actually too good to play me. <laughs> <laughs> Well, the story, and I don't want to give too much away because I, I want people to watch the series. And it's, uh, well, you find yourself, and I, I'm guessing this might have been the experience of you working with Paul, that at times you want him to do well and find what he's looking for, and then at other times you get a little infuriated with him. Well, I, I never judge my clients. That wouldn't that wouldn't serve anybody. But but do I want to kick their high knees sometimes? You bet I do. Yeah, because... Especially when they don't listen. I've had so many clients, they, they use me for a reading, and and then they say, well, you know, they'll, go, they'll call me a year later and go, I need you. And I go, what happened? Well, I didn't listen to you. <laughs> now they're in a bigger poop form, you know? Now, I don't want to give away any spoilers in the series, but as we get close to the end, questions come up, and what we think we know maybe isn't quite uh, the real deal. And the question arises, were you manipulating Paul in the course of uh, your conversations and your readings with him? Oh, my goodness. I don't think I'm capable of that. I don't think I'm capable of that. And, you know, the thing about the checks flying off, my rates are 50 and 90 half hour hour. They are the lowest in the industry. I've had people, even D says, Harry, you need to charge more because um, I just want to make my services available to everyone. I have a lot of um, horse clients that are horse poor, and if I raised my rates, they couldn't use me. So the idea that I was getting rich off of doing readings for him all the time, no, 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 no. And and I, I would never manipulate someone. That's not my role. My role is to provide information. What they choose to do with that information is sorely up to them. Yeah, and my impression was that you you opened some doors for Paul and you provided some options and some possibilities for him with some things that, frankly, he didn't want to see until you helped him see them. That, that's the way I would look at it. You know, it's when you're especially when you're working with a, in a very difficult subject matter. You know, romance is one of the things where, you know, the, you have clients that are in resistance. And they want you to tell them what they want to hear, not what the truth is. And that's totally unethical. I would never do that, you know, to someone. That, that, it's unethical. And one of the things I learned early on when doing this work is you must have impeccable ethics. You know, you can never do like, um, like an ambush reading for someone like, oh, I'm getting something on you. No, you can never do that. It's unethical to do that. I would think, too, uh, when we talk about the rewards that, that you get from doing what you do, uh, helping owners find pets who are lost, that, that has to bring you so much joy. Yeah, that's really a weird thing. I won't do uh, outdoor cats, and I won't do indoor-outdoor cats that get lost. But uh, all the other animals, sure, I'm happy to help with that. The only things I won't do is police work. So if somebody says my dog was stolen, no, not going there. You know, or my horse was stolen. Nope, won't do it. I can't tune into the negativity. And the only place you're going to get information is from the perpetrator. And you just feel like so energetically blind if you do that. So those are the only limitations I have. But I do remote viewing. So I get on Google Maps and I can feel the energy of the animal and where it is. And it's been very helpful. 
are there certain animals or types of animal that communicate better than others? Oh, I think our dogs have us very well trained. You know, they're they're telling us, you know, what to do all the time. So, um, and I I love communicating with horses because they're so they're so smart, you know, and 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 they love the partnerships that they have with us. Probably one of the smartest animals I've communicated with are mules. Mules are just amazing. Uh, you can go to Terry's website at terryj.com. You can uh, buy her books, get more information, find out about her readings. So uh, if someone were to uh, reach out to you about doing a reading over a phone, uh, how does that how does that work for you? And you, you don't want to know a whole lot in advance, right? No, I just start every reading the same. How can I help? And then as, they, as I've already done an energetic connection to them with unconditional love. And then when they start telling me what they're concerned with, then I'm connected to them and to the universe, and then I receive the, the information that they need in order to make decisions or changes that they need to make in their life. And, and what do you say to skeptics, or even if you're dealing with someone who has skeptics in their family? That, that's fine. I'm, I love skeptics. <laughs> I, lo I love them, because once you turn them, boy, <laughs> it's like a religious experience for them, because they how can you know that? There's no way you can know that. It's like, oh, I'm just making stuff up is what I tell them. <laughs> because they know I'm not. You know? So I have a lot of fun with it. And I always say what anyone thinks of me is none of my business. So if they want to be skeptical, that's fine. I'm, I'm here to help the people that are open to receiving that, the help. Terry J. with us on Downtown. If you haven't seen Paul T. Goldman yet, uh, check it out. It's worth the subscription to Peacock just to watch this terrific series and see Terry uh, both in real life and then portrayed by our friend Dee Wallace as well. And again, you can go to her website at terryj.com for more information. Terry, it's been a delight to talk with you. Thanks for making time for us this afternoon. Thanks, thanks so much for having me on. It was really great. That's Terry J. getting inside your mind here on Downtown. And again, check out the series, Paul T. Goldman. It is unlike anything you'll see out there in the TV world. Our thanks to Terry. Thanks to the great Dave Thomas. And of course, thanks to you for joining us. Downtown's brought to you every week by Cross Insurance, where security meets strength. See you next time on Downtown.